Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Up y'all and welcome to modern day debate. We are a neutral, nonpartisan platform welcoming everyone from all walks of life. If you're looking for even more fantastic debates, we are all over the internet, including your favorite podcasting platform like our new TikTok, the link of which is in the description below. And so if you enjoy debates, please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe, including tonight's debate on capitalism versus socialism with our debaters, Dr. Ben and Dr. JF, here to help us find out. And if you enjoy what either of them have to say tonight, our guest links are also in the description below. You can also tag me in chat at Amy Newman with your question or comment for our Q&A section. Those super chats will get it sent to the top of the list. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to our opening statements. The floor is all yours. All right. Thank you, Amy. Uh... Whenever I come to modern day debate, I've done so many of these capitalism versus socialism debate. Uh, I'm very interested at what Dr. Burgess has to say to my questions tonight, because in a dozen debate I've done here on that subject, I've never really heard a satisfactory answer by socialists or leftists in general, and even statists as a whole, uh, <coughs> to the two big problems of socialism. The two big problems that are automatically solved by capitalism. So much so that when we adhered to capitalism, we didn't even have an understanding of these problems. Uh, we didn't adhere to capitalism to solve these problems, but they have, capitalism has accidentally solved them. And since then, we have not thought of even a theoretical way of managing society that would be equal in quality to what capitalism provides precisely because of these two families of problems. The first family of problem I want to talk about is the eugenic, the lack of a eugenic system to arrange the forces of nature with the forces of the economic world so that they are compatible, so that they work towards sustainability, so that they don't drive toward dependence, and so that they don't drive toward unsustainability or, or draining of a system. So how do eugenic pressures work in a capitalist system, a true capitalist? I'm not talking here about, uh, I'm not talking about uh, a, a capitalist system like we have today in America or in Canada, that is not a full capitalist system. There is too much of a social net which keeps people from dying. But in a true capitalist system in which there would be no support for people who cannot sustain themselves, they would end up dying. And this would make any sort of lifestyle that is not sustainable across generations to progressively disappear from society rather than encumber 
society with a with a need with a set of needs that can only pump away energy from society of course the classical examples are social welfare of course if you give social welfare that's free money if people on social welfare can reproduce you end up with a next generation of more people who had the genes that were not eugenically fit to 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 work in the free market and you end up with a bigger cost for your social welfare there is no end to this in a socialist system until the complete crash of civilization and you will only have to count on the managing elite to decide exactly when that happens and exactly just <coughs> how much poverty do we have to go through before that system stops in capitalism the people who gather resources are able to buy land and they're able to raise bigger families than the people who don't have as much resources and there's no social welfare net that will catch people who are too much at the bottom therefore uh capitalist societies are eugenically stable and they they, they in fact improve with time whereas socialist societies are eugenically unstable they they get worse and they create more dependence up to the point where it's not sustainable anymore and i would say don't think of just social welfare as being the problem here basically all sorts of services that the state offers uh, are part of this family of problems think about public school uh, it used to be that there was a strong control of parental influence onto the child and through tradition religion and community the child would get raised mostly by, by cultural signals that would encourage the reproductivity of the child the adherence to a heterosexual lifestyle that was healthy for them and that was allowing them to have babies and uh and, and all of the information that a, a father and a mother can share with children in a socialist system we have already seen our public school within a few decades of really forced public school experimentation uh, we have seen already our system of education converge away from the natural where uh, some teachers some librarians in this system some director of the school want to push these ideas that are anti-reproductive anti-natalist onto children and sometimes at great great cost to their emotional well-being and to their possibility of reproducing later uh, that's another way in which the state as an unnatural entity comes in and imposes a regime that is unsustainable because the more the state pushes for non-reproductive anti-natalist lifestyles the more you have people who are simply draining away from uh, heterosexual families they are they are occupying a place in society but they are not giving life back they are not producing more babies for the next generation this contingent of society uh in a capitalist system with no state services can uh can live to the extent that they can gather uh, useful work in the free market and they can provide a good service to the rest of society so i'm not saying here that all anti-natalists are barred from a capitalist society but what's good about the capitalist society is it has a proper rewarding system for these people rather than rewarding everything and assuming that every human being is deserving of a minimal set of entitlements that he can steal from others if he needs to which is what socialism is 
Now, going back, so, so we've talked about eugenics. That is the, the big family of problems that relate to the natural relationship with the economic sector. And there, there's also forms of economic eugenics happening at the corporate level. The fact that corporations can outcompete one another, that is a great thing of capitalism. But a second big family of problems that I would like to see Dr. Burgess solve tonight, because I have great respect for the guy. I've seen a lot of his debates. I think he's a great guy. And I really can't wait to see what he has to tell me tonight. Uh, the second family of problem is the problem of allocation of resources. Socialism being uh, inherently authoritarian, no matter the form of the authority and the distributedness of it, socialism ends up being a centralized system at some level. Some level is making the decisions for the rest of society, even if that level is ultimately a proxy of a democratic vote, for example. But somewhere in a socialist society, and there are different flavors of it, but somewhere power is concentrated. And where power is concentrated, there is a place for failure. Because power means deciding for others what happens to them without paying the consequences. Uh, one example of how capitalism endows allocation of resources is how a capitalist can invest in companies by means of production. If that person produces something that people desire a lot and are able to pay for, that person gets rewarded, becomes a millionaire, perhaps a billionaire. And we would want exactly that kind of person who has escalated the wealth scale from zero to a billion. We want this kind of person to be able to decide what happens with society tomorrow. They are better at making decisions on what people will eventually need. They, they are better predictor because they have passed through a test, the test of success on the capitalist market, which has proven that they had a feature to their decision making that was particularly fit to know what people would eventually want. In socialism, uh, there, there is a management class, but it hasn't been properly selected for the, for, for the purpose of being good at deciding where society is headed. So what do you end up with? Well, perhaps your manager on a given day is a good one, but perhaps it's a bad one. And there is, system, there is no system to exclude the bad ones and keep only the good ones. Uh, Pretty much, it is an arbitrary system of power that will lead a manager to acquire power. And when I say manager, I mean at all levels of the corporate world, up to a, in the equivalent of a CEO. Uh, <clears throat> so, in capitalism, the people who have been rewarded have been selected, and they are able to invest money in research and development, for example, uh, where a socialist country would fail. A socialist country would have difficulty assessing what is the next iPhone? Is it worth investing in a potential next iPhone? Of course, they could make good bets on their R&D bets, but they wouldn't have been demonstrated systematically to be good enough to win those bets and to have, to have an accruing amount of capital to make those bets. That is why capitalism beats socialism. 
Thank you so very much, Dr. Jaya, for your opening statement. And we're going to hand it over to Dr. Ben for your up to 10 minute opening statement. The floor is all yours. All right. Thank you, Amy. And thank you, JF, for agreeing to this debate. That was a fascinating opening that uh, covered a lot of, uh, of territory and a lot of things that I'm sure that we're going to get into in uh, the back and forth. Um, I often think that part of the purpose of a debate is to clarify the sort of most fundamental things that you disagree on, right? So uh, Elizabeth Brunig says half the point of a debate is to get the other person to, to tell you what they really think, which I take as being, as being, among other things, a way of saying that if um, that oftentimes it's very instructive to argue with people who disagree with you on absolutely basic questions of value because as you go through the disagreement, the uh, those value uh, divergences uh, become obvious, and uh, and so anybody who agrees with with you about the value questions uh, can see where it leads and uh, pull back from it if they don't like it. So, for example, uh, I completely concur with the empirical premise that. Uh, not having capitalism in its uh, rawest form, having capitalism where some of the roughest edges have been sanded off by labor unions, by a regulatory state, by ordinary working class people having some power, uh, does differ from uh, from capitalism in its rawest form in the sense that uh, people, desperate people, are less likely to starve to death in the streets. I think that is absolutely empirically true. Uh, I, do, I think there's a huge... You know, burden of proof that has to be discharged that this will lead to even slightly bad consequences, never mind a consequence that would be so bad that it would justify letting that happen. But uh, in any case, I think because you start with that empirical agreement, then you know, we can have the more, you know, within, uh, we can really dig into the more interesting disagreement about, is it good to just let people starve to death in the streets? Is it in fact vastly civilizationally better from any perspective of anything remotely approaching normal human values to not let that happen. Um, as far as a lot of the specific challenges that were raised about arbitrary power, about whether redistribution is stealing, about economic innovation, you know, for example, about iPhones, I'm sure we're going to get into all of those in uh, the open uh, discussion. But right now, I want to pull back a little bit and talk about the basics of my position, because we've heard a little bit about why JF doesn't like uh, socialism, whatever exactly that means to him. But uh, since I'm going to be arguing for socialism, I want to say first what that means to me, and second, why, you know, what the case for it is, right, before we get into the problems. So... Uh, socialism in the broadest sense means uh, the social ownership of the economic engine of society, what's usually called the means of production, though we can treat that as a useful shorthand for the means of production, distribution, exchange, extraction, transportation, finance, all of that. Under capitalism, which we agree we have a version of right now, not as bad as it could be, but a version of it, that means uh, the means of production are in private hands. Businesses and their assets are, for the most part, not entirely, but the sort of dominant mode within the economy, either owned by individual capitalists or bits and pieces of them are owned by stockholders. Either way, the effect is to divide society into a class of workers who don't own their means of production and a class of owners who live off the work of others. 
Socialists object to that arrangement for a lot of reasons. I'll get into one in just a moment, but first I just want to note that social ownership can mean a lot of different things. I want to be as specific as possible. And I think when we address JF's challenges, uh, it's going to be good to have started out being specific. So I think the best model, uh, so if you look at, for example, David Schweikart's book, After Capitalism, or uh, the piece that Mike uh, Banks just wrote in Catalyst about this, uh, is a combination of state ownership and worker ownership. So, for example, a local coffee shop with 10 employees could be reorganized as a cooperative, where everyone or everyone who worked there for long enough to be a full member had a democratic vote in running the place, but they'd still be competing in the market with other cooperative coffee shops. But social priorities like healthcare and education should be taken out of the market entirely and planned for the public good. I would argue that we have tons of evidence from really existing models of democratic Western nations that these sectors actually work much better that way to the extent that you do need things uh, that are sort of gestured at in some of that opening statement, like price signals and firm failure to make the economic machine work efficiently. You can do that. But in this kind of model, there is a considerably expanded role for the public sector, not just in running social priorities like healthcare and education, but in directing what socialists sometimes call the commanding heights of the economy. Think energy, broadband, and crucially finance, since if you want an economy with a stable dominance by worker and community-owned firms, you want the model for starting new ones to be grants from uh, nationalized banks rather than having to drum up money from wealthy investors. Okay, so that's the model. But why would anybody want it? What's wrong with the arrangement that we have right now? Now, I would say a lot of things. We have people living in real poverty, not starving to death in the streets. Uh, we, we have... Um, you know, had that much progress at least, but uh, but real poverty and misery in uh, some of the wealthiest societies in the history of the world. We have a psychotic level of economic inequality where the average CEO, for example, makes not tens or dozens, but hundreds of times the salary of the average worker. And we have social despair fueling um, some uh, things like the opioid epidemic, uh, and we have people uh, living on the streets while other people crisscross the world on private jets. We have a foreign policy influenced less by the preferences of ordinary voters, the preferences of shareholders at Lockheed Martin. I could go on and on. Uh, but I want to, just for the last couple of minutes of my opening, go to a slightly more abstract level than that, because I'm sure we're going to be in the weeds of a lot of those issues over the course of the discussion today. But what I want to think about for a moment is what's the principle that tells us in the broadest sense how society should be organized? And to start thinking about that, I would say, well, think about why nearly everyone who, you know, is not a sociopath or is not just sort of pretending, you know, trollishly pretending to think things that they don't, finds racial discrimination, for example, deeply objectionable. Or why nearly everyone in 2023, whatever they think of capitalism and socialism, at least agrees that feudalism is a grotesque and unacceptable way to organize a society. Is some people's life chances, the resources that are allocated to them, the amount of power they have over their individual lives and the collective lives that we all live in society are different depending on whether they're black or white in the racial discrimination case, whether they're born a lord or a serf in the feudalism case, that's morally indefensible. And similar considerations should apply to different people having different life chances, different levels of ability to experience their full potential, different amounts of power, and so on, depending on whether they're born into a rich family or a poor one. Same principle applies. Uh, the fancy name for this idea, this is from the philosopher G.A. Cohen, is luck egalitarianism. 
and very roughly, this is my way of putting it, but the core of the idea comes from Cohen, is that a set of social institutions are unjust to the extent that they lead to some people having more than others due to factors outside of their control. Uh, you don't get to decide whether you're black or white. You don't get to decide whether you're born into a rich family or a poor one. And you could say, hey, some people climb up the ladder of economic mobility due to their own talents. And that's absolutely true. Uh, but uh, those talents, even in the cases where it is that and not dumb luck, those talents are themselves unevenly distributed. That's true of cognitive talents, no less than physical ones. Um you know, if I'd done nothing all day, every day from a young age, but shoot hoops in the backyard, I would still not have a future in the NBA. And similarly, whether you're good at school, whether you're good at schmoozing and climbing career ladders, uh, all of the things that go into climbing the ladder in a corporate capitalist society are themselves unevenly distributed. And it's fundamentally unjust, all else being equal, for different people to uh, have different levels of ability to fulfill their potential, have different levels of ability to leave a stable and dignified life, all of those things because of factors outside of their control. Now, uh, the fact that societies, I know I'm coming up to the end, but I just wanted to say this, that societies are more just the more they correct for inequalities, does not mean that the right choice is always to correct for every inequality. Sometimes you might uh, you might have to allow some degree of inequality, not you know CEOs making hundreds of times the salary of workers, but some degree of inequality for the sake of providing incentives that you need to keep the economic engine running. And that's fine. You can take that into account. Sometimes you have to balance distributive justice against other important values. But I do think that inequality is linked to factors outside of our control should be considered guilty until proven innocent. That's why the end of feudalism in Europe or the end of Jim Crow in America, or according to me at least, not JF, the creation of the modern welfare state so poor kids didn't starve to death in the street, were all massive victories for basic justice. And it's also why anyone who looks at the dismal capitalist status quo around us and says, yeah, that's it. This is the best we could possibly do as a species. I don't think is being serious about this. Thank you so very much, Dr. Ben, for your opening statement. I do want to remind everyone out there that as we move into open conversation, that if you like your podcasting platform of choice on Spotify, Twitch, and our new TikTok, to go check that out. And please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. But with that, we are now moving into the open conversation. The floor is both of yours. All right. Uh, fascinating uh, speech there. I, I don't think... Do you consider that you've addressed my two points, or is that something you would like to do as we speak? Well, like I said at the beginning of the opening statement, uh, I would, you know, I would expect uh, you have to remind me what the two specific ones are. I wrote down several things that you said. I expect we'll get into these in the course of the uh, the opening discussion. I thought I saw there was a point about uh, about stealing uh, that you know that you think that economic distribution is stealing. I saw that the uh, you talked about. Uh, arbitrary power uh, and how you think that its power isn't arbitrary if it's distributed by markets. I saw there's a point about economic innovation, iPhones, uh, you know, those and the initial point about uh, eugenics, I, I, I sort of took as the sort of four 
big challenges that you were given, but you can clarify which ones you have in mind. Oh, well, because to be clear, what I'd like to hear from you tonight is how does socialism handle the eugenic pressure? Uh, how does socialism handle the fact that there are people who drain from society without giving back, and this segment of the population keeps growing forever until, until it's not sustainable? Okay, well, I think that I heard an assertion of facts there about uh, a segment of society growing forever and being unsustainable. Uh, those are positive assertions you're making. They're ones that the overwhelming majority of subject matter experts and almost literally any subject that would be relevant to evaluating that claim would disagree with. So I would say that the burden of proof is 100% yours. And I would be, uh, I would be interested in, uh, I would be interested here in how you would discharge it. But also, I would say that uh, it is interesting if we're going to look at people who, uh, who take and don't give back, it sounds to me like there is an implicit moral principle there that they, uh, that nobody should have things that they don't work for. And if you take that principle seriously, here are two things you're going to have to absolutely object to. One is inheritance uh, and the other is stock ownership uh, because, uh, because both of those are by their nature ways that, uh, that people can get income that's not linked to work. So to be clear, my statement is not a moral one about taking and giving back. Uh, my statement is a mathematical one about sustainability. And uh, it, it's, a, it's almost axiomatic as a truth that from an evolutionary perspective, if you find a way to get as much from society as someone else or just close enough to survive. If you get any social net that allows you to survive and thrive through the generations in society and you're capable of getting it, getting it without producing as much energy for the rest of the society, uh, by definition, you have a growing contingent of a dependent population. That's an evolutionary truth that can be demonstrated like two plus two equals four. So, so I, I'm not talking about a society that I necessarily think about that has existed, although I'm sure there are societies that ended up crashing because of a phenomenon like this. But from a mathematical perspective, what do you do when there's too much dependence in your society? Yeah, so um, so I heard you say a really interesting combination of things just then. I'm glad to know that you don't uh, morally object uh, to uh, to to have an income that's uh, that's not based on work. So we can take that out of the consideration. Now we're just talking about some sort of uh, utilitarian concern that this is the these are some bad consequences that you want to avoid. And uh, and I will just note that that considerably raises the uh, bar of that burden of proof because you have to show not only there are bad consequences, but that there are consequences that are worse than intentionally letting uh, people starve to death. Uh, and uh, if, you know, that like innocent people die of starvation when you could prevent it, which about which I would just say good luck. But I do just want to note that you say, well, from an evolutionary perspective, it's almost axiomatic. And then you talked about surviving and thriving through the generations. There are three things going on there. So uh, one, you know, you talk about axioms. So an axiom uh, is a unproven assumption in a mathematical system. Uh, so you have, you know, like one version of geometry that you get with Euclidean axioms. You have another version of geometry you get with non-Euclidean axioms. The whole thing about axioms is that, um, 
is that you though these are your these are just the things that you choose to start with and then all of the mathematical rigor is building up from them i i suspect that what you mean when you say axiomatic is something more like well it's it's true a priori you don't need evidence elementary for that's what i mean elementary and i'm referring to the fact that it's not bad to start a theory of society with the axiom that humans are reproductive creatures uh, so, so that's where it's very close to the axiom in the sense that suffice to realize that humans are reproductive creature. Therefore, evolution applies to them. Therefore, drainage of, of energy by a contingent of the population is a problem if they don't get eliminated. So we just heard three things. The first was humans are reproductive uh, creatures, which if that just means humans are creatures that reproduce, sure, happy to go along with that. Uh, the second is evolution applies to them. Sure, yeah, no, no creationists here. The third very obviously doesn't follow in any way, shape, or form from the first two. Uh, you have, if you, you know, like, just starting from your first two, uh, there's there's just no way without a bunch of other empirical arguments to get from the first two to your third. And if you want to say, I mean, if the chain of inference is supposed to go, evolution applies to them, therefore this really specific prediction is going to be true. Well, first question that, you know, would be obviously raised here is, you know, if you want to know what's true about evolution, you know, we're not arguing, as you say, uh, in this part of your claim, you know, about uh, moral principles, though those are going to be relevant later. We're arguing about what's factually true about a uh, about a area of science that's a, that's an area of specialization most people are not experts in etc then the pretty straightforward procedure that would be justified for most people would be to say well what is it that the experts in this subject matter say so is it your impression that the majority of evolutionary biologists or even one-tenth of one percent of evolutionary biologists agree with that very specific prediction that you said could somehow be derived from the theory of our evolution. Ben, uh, I, I expected a little more from you tonight than an argument from authority or argument oh, even from authority. popularity within the academic world. I think that people will have catched it on, uh, on the regular chat. That is so obvious, I don't even need to answer it. It's absolutely uh, you, you ridiculous do, do to be in this it. debate, to be in this debate pursuing I'm not, I'm popularity I'm contests and surveys. My God, man! I, I, I gotta, I gotta stop you there because that's not what argument for authority means. Uh, so, if you're talking about the appeal to authority fallacy, the appeal to authority fallacy that you, you learn about in the logic textbook is the fallacy of say that something is uh, is true, inferring that it's true because of somebody who's impressive, who's an authority, uh, says it when it's only a fallacy if what makes them an authority, what makes them impressive, uh, doesn't actually give them access to any information about this subject that the rest of us don't have. It's the equal and opposite thing from ad hominem fallacy, which uh, which is not like saying something mean, but it's like saying that some irrelevant negative fact about somebody gives them a re us a reason to think that what they think is false. What you're talking about, what you're calling appeal to authority, and this is really an important point to drill down into, because if people don't understand this, they're just going to be at sea in this whole subject. What you're calling appeal to authority is legitimate citation of expert opinion. That's just an epistemic division of labor, that we can't all be, can be experts on everything. So some of us you know, become experts on one subject, some of us become experts on another, we report back to each other. 
And that, I'm sorry, that's not a, uh, that's not a fallacy. In fact, if we couldn't legitimately do that, most of us uh, would be in no justified position to pronounce on almost anything important. I consider that you have taken a branch that is absolutely fallacious. You uh, don't have an understanding of what the appeal to authority is. Uh, it's not about whether the authority has the quality to be an authority. Uh, it's the fact that appealing to the authority, whether it's good or not, whether that authority has proven in the past being right or not, doesn't matter. What matters are the facts that you can bring, the logical systems that you can lay out. And I have laid out my, my logical system, and it's available for everyone to see well, you, you, you when have, there is yeah, reproduction. Yeah. Just like when you go into the animal world, when, when there is reproduction happening and evolution, the, the, the animals who mutate towards self-serving directions will increase in number. That is a fundamental truth of any evolutionary system. Yeah. So uh, you misunderstood. I didn't say that what makes an appeal to authority fallacy, this is just unambiguously true. Uh, I mean, what you're revealing right now is that uh, I, I would really recommend after this, like find like a critical reasoning, you know, critical thinking, informal logic textbook uh, and see exactly what they say about this. Uh, this is going to be what they say. And they're correct to uh, to say it. In fact, I mean, having taught classes like that a number of times, you spend a lot of time correcting people who think, oh, any citation of uh, of expert um of expert testimony is the appeal to authority fallacy. It is absolutely not. Uh, I'd not say that it's uh, that it's you know what makes a you know authority authority. You know that if they're like a legitimate authority, that appeal to authority is a fallacy. What I'm saying is appeal to authority fallacy is treating uh, what somebody impressive authoritative says as evidence when there's no reason in this context that it would be evidence that they don't have access to any information that the rest of us don't have. That's a completely different thing from legitimate citation of expert opinion, that they have a, that uh, it's completely justified, for example, for people who uh, could not uh, could not explain uh, what the evidence is that like the special theory of relativity is true to say to, uh, to, uh, to save their lives. That doesn't mean that they're unjustified in believing that it's true because it's a perfectly correct inference to say here are the people who know much more about this factual subject that I do. Uh, you know, here's what they say. That is evidence that that is the uh, that that is correct. Now, just saying that you can do a few summary, you know, that you could do a few sentences at a sort of rough, intuitive level of like, well, this is what would sort of sound right to me about evolution. I don't think you're being serious about this as an area of science. That this is uh, that. Uh, that this it's just not uh, that's just not a way that you can get legitimate information about how evolutionary biology works. Uh, I am an evolutionary biologist uh, with a PhD in neuroscience with postdoc experiment doing evolutionary studies on monkeys and even uh, going to study genetics in the private sector. Uh, I, I qualify as an expert on evolutionary biology as anyone else on Earth. Uh, that there is not anyone above me. I wrote the revolutionary phenotype. I wrote the current state of biology in terms of the emergence of life and genetic codes. That being said, none of this matters to what I say, because what I say 
are mathematical layouts that are demonstrably testable that, that people can, can, can encode in a MATLAB and they'll be able to see it on their computer that it's a truth, that whatever is self-serving from a replicative perspective ends up increasing in number. That is an absolute truth of anything that reproduces and mutates and subjects itself to selection. Now, just to cap off on the whole appeal to authority, because I think we laid out both of our views, uh, I want to finish by simply saying on this, you have strummed me a little bit uh, when, when you claim that I'm, uh, that I'm saying things that I'm not saying. I'm not saying that anyone citing an expert would be an expert testimony would be committing an appeal to authority. But what would matter is the content of the expert's testimony, not the fact that he's an expert. What I criticize in your approach is that you have proposed selecting people and their expertise level as a standard for truth seeking. You have suggested it as a mechanism to pursue truth that is what makes your claim an appeal to authority yeah uh again you literally don't know what the appeal to authority fallacy is uh any critical thinking informal logic teacher who spends their time explaining to students what the appeal to authority uh, fallacy is would uh would rightly correct you on uh on this point uh there there is something called higher order evidence that they have a uh, that uh, that if the people who have spent the most time looking at a body of facts uh have uh, you know who uh, who know more about it than uh, than most people who are you know who are trying to figure this out do uh you know think something about it then that is some evidence it's not indefeasible evidence but it is some evidence uh as far as you know let's let's assume for uh, you know for the sake of argument um that uh, that your your background in neuroscience you know does uh, does make you a, a super expert in all aspects of evolutionary theory, uh, such as uh, the ones that you would need in order to make uh, your frankly pretty eccentric view about this work. Uh, like, because you need a whole cluster of empirical assumptions, not just the generalization. Yes, that's nice, Jeff. That has nothing to do with what I'm saying. They have a uh, because unless in that book uh, you have evidence that the whole cluster of traits that would be relevant for what you're saying are heritable, just to start with, which is a massively no, controversial. Not in is, this book, but I was about to bring the evidence. Can I lay it out? Uh, be my guess, but my point was just this: that they have a uh, even uh, even if that were the case, uh, that it would still remain the case that they have a that uh, that any reasonable person looking at one, uh, let's uh, let's say for the sake of argument, evolutionary biologist, uh, what what evolutionary biologist thinks, and what the other you know ninety nine point nine 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 percent of evolutionary biologists think, if they're wondering what follows from evolutionary biology. If uh, if ninety nine point nine 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 percent of evolutionary biologists disagree with that conclusion, then all else being equal, until we can have a level of evidence that is simply not reproducible in a YouTube debate, uh, given the level of empirical complexity here, all else being equal, that would give us a reason to be deeply skeptical of what you're saying. All right, let's talk about the evidence. Uh, there's a study called Dissecting Polygenic Signals from Genome-Wide Association Studies on Human Behavior. Uh, in general, do, do, you, uh, do you have a, a conception or a belief in the validity of twin studies? Uh, 
I mean, this is not something I spend a lot of uh, a lot of time talking about. I know just a little bit about this, but why don't we why don't we skip the Socratic question and you could just lay out what you want to lay out? Okay, uh, so twin studies are studies by which we can test <coughs> an hypothesis about the importance of genes for behavior. One moment, I need to cough. So twin studies are uh, study designs in which we have twins. Uh, these twins can be similar, in which case they are basically genetic, genetic copies of, of each other. And these twins can be uh, twins that are different, in which sense they are simply brothers and sisters or, or siblings in general. Uh, so these twins sometimes can be studied in their family or they can be studied as they get separated sometimes. Uh, because their mother abandons them and they get adopted in different families. This allows us, because of the difference of the genetic link where they resemble each other at 50% or they resemble each other at uh, 100%, this allows a calculation of just how, how much causality is, it, is there between uh, having the same genes and not having the same genes and being in a different environment or being in the same environment. Uh, so this all allows ultimately with mathematical calculations to, to get a guess on the total variability linked in, in the population to genes versus to other factors than genes. Um, these studies are all reinforcing the idea, and I'm, I'm also I'm always citing the Abdelawi 2021 study on this because it gathers so many of them. When you package all these studies together, the the conclusion, the vast majority of human cognitive, social, and success measures of all kind, from school to income to baby making, all of this is under significant, very heavy genetic influence, which I'm afraid these studies merely just get the, the bound, the lower bound of the real genetic causes, because it is a fact that these studies will tend to dismiss parental genes. So I think that there are actually more genes involved than those genes that we detect from these studies. But what these studies certainly show is that genes have a massive effect on measures like IQ, income, success, anything you might consider positive, uh, mental disorders, anything that you might consider a bad measure of, a, of well-being or lifestyle, all of them. There, there is none of them that is malleable by the environment uh, in the way the socialists would need for him to change the world the way they want through social control. Well, that is, um, I don't know where that claim is, that last claim is, uh, is coming from. Uh, I, also, I also will just briefly note uh, that, of course, the degree to which various, you know, all sorts of traits that are relevant here are, um, are, are heritable or not uh, is, is deeply controversial. If you, you know, if you look into this literature just a little bit, uh, you will, uh, you'll see uh, you know, you'll see that the uh, that uh, that there is there's no consensus on almost any of that stuff. Uh, but uh, but you know, and I also think that you know we we saw uh, you know we saw JF holding up his uh, popular level uh, book about this uh, earlier. 
uh, and also claiming that uh, there's no greater authority in the world uh, than him on uh, on evolutionary biology. Now, my understanding is that most of the studies that he's credited on, uh, he's only credited as an assistant. Almost none of them is the primary researcher. <laughs> but uh, but you know that is false. Maybe he that is, is false. Okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> I have maybe- a PNAS first author paper. You know how hard it is to publish in PNAS. Okay, so they have a, uh, so, you know, I think, I think what I said was almost all, but anyway, whatever, let's fine. Uh, so, uh, in any case, uh, uh, but there is a huge gap, right? There is a mountainous gap between, say, that there's lots of genetic influence on all of these things, uh, which could well be true, uh, and then saying, uh, that uh, say that the specific empirical prediction, uh, which would be co-signed onto by almost no experts in any of these fields that JF is making, is is just true, you know, a priori, or you know that you uh, that you know they're just some very basic statements about evolution that somehow entail it. Uh, so I just want to note that, but also we just got a claim that uh, that you'd have to have a bunch of, you know, that a bunch of important, uh, you know, cognitive or other features uh, have to uh, have to not be heritable. They, uh, they have to, uh, they have to be from socialization to have malleability that you need for socialism. And now we have finally uh, wandered back into where we should have been all along. Because uh, having a debate about whether JF is correct or whether 99.99999% of his colleagues are correct about his specific empirical predictions is, you know, not a good use of, uh, of anybody's time. I don't think you could, you know, you could fruitfully do that in this context. But saying things like, oh, for socialism to work, you need certain kind of malleability of, uh, you know, the, of all of these traits well, that's something we could actually have a useful discussion on uh, in a context like that. So please hit me with this. Why, why do you need that malleability for socialism to work? How's that connection even supposed to go? First, in response to everything you've said, literally every single word you've said for the five minutes, for the last five minutes, is talking about consensus, opinions. They said this, they said that, not a single fact. Not a single logical element has been pronounced here. We have just heard about experts, consensus, opinions. None of this is an argument. It's absolute crap. Absolutely just delivered. Absolutely an argument. Anybody who understands anything about epistemology would understand that that is an argument. And if appeal to authority was what you thought it was, if we couldn't have an epistemic division of labor and uh, and have higher order evidence that you know evidence from the consensus of experts in a field, it would be impossible for human knowledge to progress. Well, and, I am. Uh, I'm not surprised. Yes, what? Oh no, uh, do- uh, J- Dr. JF, I'll let you have since Dr. Ben just had a point on it. I'll let you have the last point on it, and then maybe I've actually been enjoying the back and forth. But if anyone has maybe a different point over that, keep on exploring different avenues of socialist versus capitalist. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, uh, I I just reject. I don't remember what was the what the, what I was about to say uh, before the interruption, but uh, I reject 
uh, your conception of the advancement of knowledge. Oh yeah, here's what I was about to say. I was about to say, given that behavior that you display tonight, it's not surprising that so much of the university is deriving totally away from the truth and, and speaking in theories rather than engaging in hard science. It is so, so uh, insulting to knowledge what has been done with the humanities, the social sciences, and so much of the hard sciences these days, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it uh, is exactly the opposite of what you just said is true. Uh, what I've advocated is respect for the hard sciences, which is only possible if instead of everybody saying, ah, here are like three or four sentences about a rough intuitive understanding of how evolutionary biology works, I'm just going to derive a bunch of super specific predictions from that and to the hell, to hell with what the evolutionary biologists themselves think. What I'm advocating is a reasonable degree of epistemic humility and say that, of course, we need to take into consideration uh, the uh, the scientific consensus that's uh, that's reached over the course of a long collaborative research pro uh, process. But what we didn't get to, what the part that's actually much more relevant and interesting for tonight is, you said that uh, that uh, all these traits that you're talking about uh, have to be malleable; they can't be heritable uh, in order for socialism to work. And what I want to know is how does that connection work? Uh, well. The problem is that if you cannot uh, manipulate people the way Marxists assume, uh, they are headed toward an evolutionary direction that you do not control. And that evolutionary direction is inevitably uh, going to lead to parasitism. Uh, just like in the entirety of the living world, uh, all spaces are filled with parasites. It's just a default mode of evolution to be draining from whatever's around you and consuming it to extend your own life and extend your own baby making. That is the truth of evolution. And that is why if you cannot reprogram behavior, and if, as I say, and, uh, and I don't think that the consensus is as you represent it, when you read Robert Plumman, you will see that it is an absolute consensus in academia that genetics cause human behavior. Uh, some will say part, some will say a large part, but certainly there is a consensus that it is a very important part uh, of human behaviors that are caused by genetics. If you cannot reteach the way the, the Marxists assume, and if behavior naturally heads toward whatever is more self-serving for the life forms that are exploiting your environment, then socialism is lost because my statements about it and it's unsustainability must be true. Okay, so uh, you just conflated two wildly different issues. One is, is there at least a large part of human behavior that uh, as a result of genetics? Uh, and the other is, is your specific empirical prediction, right? This is a factual issue uh, that, uh, that you think is, I mean, first you said it was axiomatic, uh, and, you know, but then, you know, you, you seem to think that this somehow follows from evolutionary biology. Is that true? Very obviously, the first could be true without the, uh, the second being true. Uh, in fact, you just made my point for me, because if indeed there is, you know, what I said earlier, I mean, I don't know where you heard me denying this, right? But um, uh, what I said is that the degree to which various kinds of traits uh, are... Uh, uh, are genetically determined is wildly controversial. 
Uh, but hardly any experts in evolutionary biology would co-sign your very specific empirical prediction about human society. Now they have a, uh, that, um, so I don't know. It's not even their field of expertise. Why would they? They're not sociologists. Okay. Well, well, hold on. But you, you said many times tonight that, uh, that we could derive this from evolutionary biology. If it follows from evolutionary biology, you said, you know, you said first step, Humans are reproductive creatures. Second step, uh, evolution applies to them. Therefore, all of this, well, if all of that follows for the second step, then it is very odd that the people who know the most about uh, evolution would not co-sign uh, your prediction. It's your, not your, odd at all when you consider the degree of censorship that's applying to right-wing ideas in the academia. The, the sure. people who would say this would totally lose their job. Okay. They would never get one in the first place. Okay, sure. Um, so, I mean, this is the last refuge of creationists, flat earthers, uh, people, you know, people who believe that uh, that lizard men control the world, that when all else fails, you say that the truth is simply being, uh, being suppressed. Uh, and, you know, I guess, all right. But, no, the truth is not being so, suppressed, but I'm telling you, don't be surprised by your empirical observation if there's a system in place precisely to make your observation impossible. Uh, if someone was thinking like you described in academia, they would just shut up because they would know to shut up. Yeah, okay. Um, well, again, as with the initial empirical prediction that we've heard no evidence for tonight, uh, now we have a new empirical assertion that uh, that uh, anybody who agreed with you would be frozen out of the hard sciences, which for, for somebody, uh, you know, again, I think basic respect for people who, uh, who, who do hard sciences is the sort of thing we shouldn't believe without a lot of evidence. But I do not want this to get lost, uh, that sure, if... It is true, as you say, that there is a expert consensus that uh, that you know at least a large part of all of these behaviors and traits are heritable. But there is clearly not about all the stuff that you think could somehow be logically derived from that. I think that is at least some evidence that against this connection. Now, if you spelled out an argument where you you know where you showed me exactly how it follows merely from evolution that any of this is true, we would have to revisit that, but I have heard nothing approaching that tonight. Also, you say Marxists assume that human behavior is totally malleable. That's just false. There's there's absolutely nothing about Marxism that assumes that. There's nothing about socialism that assumes that. You don't have to make any prediction whatsoever about the uh, the malleability of either traits or behavior to think that it's better to have a society where power and resources uh, are distributed in ways that are not linked to factors outside of our control. In fact, uh, part of the motivation for uh, for thinking uh, for thinking that that would be better, I mean, you know, Marxism is a uh, is a is a factual, is a descriptive theory. It's not a it's not a moral one. You know, Marxism is a theory about how you know progress of human history that you know that tells us that uh, that at this stage of development you have the possibility to have uh, abundance shared in more uh, shared in a more egalitarian way in terms of both resources and power. That's a separate question from morally whether we we should do that. But even if we're sticking to the socialist moral claim, part of the motivation for that moral claim is precisely the fact that various sorts of traits that are rewarded in class societies 
are distributed unevenly. And so the claim is that nobody should uh, be living in poverty or misery or to go but to back to what you embraced at the beginning of the debate, starving to death in the streets uh, because of things that are outside of their control. As I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, what it sounded like you were saying is that the, well, uh, we have this sort of overwhelming utilitarian reason to to allow that to happen because there would be some sort of absolutely disastrous outcome that would uh, that that happens if you if you don't let people starve to death in the streets. Uh, but is is that the argument? Uh, yeah, uh, the disastrous outcome. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily point to it as a moral thing. <clears throat> what I'm saying is, by trying to save people from starving you're leading to more people starve in the future. And inevitably, inevitably in the future, you're going to end up with more suffering than what you saved. It's a mathematical truth simply because you are farming into population people who are not capable of helping themselves. And that is a problem. Now, I'm happy that you brought this point around. Um, you, I noted it here. Um, what did you just say? Good role. Oh, you said, <coughs> no, that's not what you said. Do you remember what you said about a minute ago? Uh, which part? So we, uh, we talked about, uh, we talked about. Okay, it. yes, outside of their control. That is, that is something I wanted to talk to you about. Please, yeah. uh, this is a fundamental point of disagreement between you and I. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that someone controls something is not the criteria by which it should be rewarded. And that is where exactly even you, who who said that the Marxists don't assume human malleability, that is where you assume human malleability. When you believe that the, the subject of the rewarding unit should be behavior that you control, you are misdirecting society away, simply in a bad direction, simply because what we need to reward is not just what people control. We need to reward what people are. We need to reward genes because we are in an evolutionary system. And where you don't do this, you have an accumulation of incapacity in the population. So, sorry, I, uh, so you said that um, believing that all else being equal, it's unjust to uh to have um to uh for for inequalities to be linked to factors outside of your control that's my claim you said that believing that moral principle assumes human malleability um and i I heard a lot of things about the bad consequences that you think would come about from you know trying it but i didn't actually hear how the principle assumes human malleability well, because presumably you're giving rewards to, to what people can change because you are hoping it to ch- you are hoping to direct their behavior in a given direction that you prefer, right? Uh, I don't know where that's coming from. I mean, I'll, like the heavy all. I mean, the, 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 the I mean the. Principle- what do you think is the function of incentives in a socialist world? Because you you sure. mentioned incentives earlier. I, I, okay, good. So let's clarify the point about incentives. So they have a uh, so there's. Um, the claim about so luck egalitarianism is the uh, is the moral claim. That's the claim that um, all else being equal, society is more just if uh, if it corrects for and eliminates 
uh, inequalities in distribution of resources, distribution of power, distribution of life chances that are outside of the control of the people on the bottom end. Uh, so, but I was also very careful to note in the opening statement when I said that, that that doesn't mean that in every situation you should always, um, you should always eliminate every inequality that's outside of people's control. And when I brought up incentives, the point is that is an example uh, of one of the reasons why you might not do that because distributive justice that, you know, you're not, you know, you're not distributed in an unjust way, the way that you are, if, you know, you're distributing, you know, more to some people than others based on skin color, the way that you are, if you're distributed based on whether you're born a Lord or a serf and the way I think you are, if you're distributed based on, physical or cognitive capabilities that are outside of anybody's control, whether they have them or not, that yes, to the extent that you're doing that is distributive injustice, but distributive justice isn't the only value that we care about. Sometimes that has to be balanced against other values. So one example is about economic efficiency, right? So you might, you know, you might have to uh, have more, you know, more distributive and, you know, you might have to have some degree of distributive injustice. You might have to say, okay, some people are going to get more than others because of factors outside of control for the purposes of providing incentives to, to work harder, to you know, contribute more to the economy. That's fine. But there's, a, but there's a world of difference between saying, okay, we're going to balance these values and you might, you know, distributive justice might have to take some hit uh, for, uh, for the sake of incentives and saying we just don't care about distributive uh, justice, let the chips fall where they may in a free market. So you have have a uh, you can you know you might need for example to incentivize some people to do certain jobs that are very important to society you know you might need to give you know to assuming that we're still talking about society with money and all that stuff you might need to pay some people more than others to do those jobs but realistically incentives aren't going to get you to anything like the degree of inequality you have under contemporary corporate capitalism. They're not going to get you to a degree of inequality where some people make hundreds of times uh, you know, more, more than others, that's considerably further than incentives are going to get you. And, and I know, I'm sure you want to respond to that, but I, I, I do just want to say, cause I'm a little concerned about, um, I'm not sure how much time we have left for open discussion and all that. So I, I just want to say, uh, oh, 20 before, more minutes, 20 more minutes. Okay, perfect. So, okay. So I just want to flag if, if you want to respond to that, we, but like, I do, I do just want to flag at some point in the next 20 minutes, I really want to go back to, uh, the point you made about like stealing and voluntariness and all of that earlier, because I think that's going to be all right. part of the disagreement. Let's go back to it very soon. I will just yeah. tell you that there is a problem about capping off the level of inequality, which is that capitalism can access a larger, better allocation of resource to a single individual that socialism can ever accomplish. And it is simply desirable that it is such, because if that individual has repeatedly succeeded at shaping society in a way that people throw money at him, uh, that individual's decision-making is needed at the top and at the top of as much money as we can give him. Uh, so that's why capitalism has a better system for allocation of resource. If you cap the high class, then there's no one really ever acquiring any control that is meritocratic in nature, that has been rewarded by the free market, and that is therefore warranted onto the rest of society. 
Yeah, I mean, if you want a distribution that's meritocratic, uh, then you need uh, you need an awful lot of statism because the first thing that you'd have to do is abolish inheritance. Uh, that's obviously a massively anti-meritocratic element of capitalist property relations. Uh, the second thing you'd have to do is uh, to uh, to start, uh, you know, to uh, to to eliminate uh, things like uh, private schools and passive stock ownership all of which are going to tend to tilt the distribution of resources in an un, uh, in an unmeritocratic direction. You know, it is, but it is, here you have defined meritocratic to be at the individual unit. I define meritocratic to be at the gene level. And so we, we, we reward the right genes. And so it doesn't matter to me that there's inheritance. In fact, Every dollar that is accumulated by the parent should be given to the child precisely because he's carrying the same genes as the parent. They are the right genes to reward with the money that they've accumulated. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so your your view is that uh, is that you know whatever features deserve reward that are held in uh, in parents are going to uh, invariably or almost invariably also be present to children? Not necessarily invariably, but if at least they are probabilistically linked to it, if it's more than random, the, the way the, the gene transfer across generation and the way it causes a certain phenotype, then that will be enough for evolution to go on and for that gene to be a problem if it's if it's rewarded too much and becomes parasitic, parasitic, and be a solution if it's a gene that gives you good feature for living a sustainable life in, in an environment where you are fit. Yeah. So okay. So uh, there is, you know, I thought maybe your view was that it was like at least almost invariable. What I just heard was more than random. So if uh, if there is even ever so slightly uh, better than uh, than random chance uh, distribution of desirable uh, desirable traits to children. That's enough uh, to have distribution that would be wildly at odds with individual level meritocracy. Yes, it's have, just like, that the, the closer you are to random, what's going to happen? It's going to take more hundreds of years before your society crashes, but it's still going to happen because. Only a difference of 0.001 babies production per couple or in terms of survival at the evolutionary level will show up across the thousands of years. It will be enough for a population to completely overtake another and eventually form the main demographic of that society. Okay. Uh, again, I th think there's a, uh, I mean, I think, Using merit, you know, even using the language of meritocracy here is a little misleading because, given the degree of disconnect with what most people mean by uh, by meritocracy, but you know, ultimately, if what we're getting is a consequentialist argument, an argument about you know uh, crashing of society in the future, then again, I know that you don't like this, but I think that that is you know that's a that's an empirical claim. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a claim that you know that you you would need to look uh, at whether most people with relevant uh, with relevant subject matter expertise would sign on uh, to uh, would would sign on to uh, to the claim, short of actually doing a degree of research, you know, somehow during a YouTube debate that obviously uh, can't be uh, be realistically done here. But I do want to, if it's okay with you. 
I do want to switch gears because because uh, you know you've been talking about all of these um, consequentialist arguments that if we if we have welfare if we have if we don't have such a high degree of inequality that poor people just starve to death in the streets, uh, then eventually that's going to lead to such bad consequences that it'd be even worse than, than, you know, letting some poor people die, starve to death in the streets right now. But it sounded like earlier you were making a non-consequentialist argument. You were making a principled argument because you were talking about like stealing, you know, what's voluntary, and that sounds like a an argument from a sort of general moral principle about respect for property rights or something like that. And if you were indeed making that argument, that seems worth exploring. Yeah, uh, I would say it's it, it may have a moral component in the sense that I want a society where all interactions are consensual between individuals. Uh, of course, with the tolerance of the idea of a child having to have a parent at some point, but eventually converging toward adult decision-making, uh, driving consensu- consensually the directions of society. And the way you get this is by basically having the state reduced to nothingness or close to nothingness, simply because the greatest danger that removes the power of the people to influence the economy is the rise of the state because people in the purely capitalist free market economy they can speak with their money vote with their money they can uh, they can allow certain corporations to exist others not under the state control it is not consensual anymore and therefore it is stealing in the sense that it is a a set of agent or a, an agent taking money non-consensually giving it to someone else against their will under threat and that is what I, what anyone would call stealing as far as i'm concerned yeah so there are two claims there uh one is that state redistribution is stealing that it's that it's it's non-consensual in a way that uh keeping property uh distribution the way that it is right now is consensual and the other is that people have more control over economic outcomes given a free market because they could vote with their money and i would like to just briefly address both of those uh one at a time uh so on the point about um what's consensual or what's voluntary or what's not uh i think that there is a fundamental confusion here that they have a that uh, any you know any distribution of resources that's being enforced in some way, and of course you've never had and could never have a stateless version of uh, of capitalism. Capitalism has always been and it always will be based on a state uh, to enforce uh, property claims. Uh, that they have a whether you're enforcing existing property claims or you're enforcing redistributive property claims. Uh, neither of these is any more consensual than uh, than the other. In both cases, you're uh, depriving some people of access to scarce resources uh, against their will, coercively, with the implicit threat of violence. You know, whether it's a whether it's a letter from the IRS or a no trespassing sign, it is exactly equally to exactly the equally the same extent uh, a uh, an enforcement of a distribution of scarce resources uh, based uh, based on the threat of violence. Now, if these things seem different, it's because you think one of them is a justified exclusion because you think, oh, no, no, well, that's that person's property. You know, that belongs to them, so it's okay to use force to exclude other people from it. But I 
I think once this move is made, we can see that the uh, that uh, the business about consensualness or voluntariness was always a red herring. What was always really doing the work, what was always in the driver's seat, is the theory of who should have what. The theory that's like, oh, this is okay because it came about by the right process because you know because because this is you know, a free market, for example, you know, distributed it this way because, you know, there was the right kind of chain of transactions that led to you having it that way. And there, I think that's where the real argument should be had, because of course, whatever the distribution is, it's going to have to be enforced. But the, uh, but the real question is which distribution should, uh, should be enforced. So that's the first point that just very quickly on the second point about uh, voting with your dollars. I think that that uh, has, some legitimacy in some contexts. I think that if you're, of course, uh, obviously this is a kind of voting uh, where some people have a hell of a lot more votes uh, than uh, than others. If we're talking about, you know, what kind of control most people have over outcomes, but also, um, but you know, but it is true, right? That uh, that one advantage of market systems, which include but are not exclusive to capitalism, uh, but one advantage of market mechanisms uh, is that you do have. Um, you know, you do have price signals, you do have people, you know, having the ability to, uh, to reward the production of certain products or not producing those products uh, with their purchasing decisions. And there is, there is some real utility to that. That's why the kind of model of socialism that I started with granted, hey, in any kind of short-term realistic vision of socialism, we probably would have to retain some of those mechanisms. But I just want to note that that's a very different thing from saying that most people, you know, that people have, uh, you know, control over the economy as a whole. Which goods are produced is one important question, but it's not the only important question, especially not from the point of view of the working class majority of the population. If most people have to spend half of their waking hours uh, going to uh, going to work uh, in a workplace where you know they they have to follow orders, etc., then sure, which products are produced is part of their interest in uh, what happens economically because those are the products they get to enjoy their off hours and all that stuff. But it's not the only one. Uh, how, what happens in the workplace, uh, whether uh, how much of the, how much of the, uh, the revenue for those products is kept by the workers and how much of it goes to the capitalists, what the safety conditions are like, what the effect is on the larger natural environment. These are all economic questions that are of tremendous interest to most people that the voting with your dollars argument uh, simply doesn't, doesn't touch in uh, doesn't touch in practice, you know, that they, that if you, if you want most people to have influence over these things, the only way to do that is through a democratic state. Uh, there may be uh, in principle, some environmental concerns that, that can only be handled by voting or by some sort of agreement. And, I'm okay as long as we keep a minarchy to manage those. Uh, that is the minimum state. The problem of the current states and the states that basically all socialists I've ever spoken to want, it's a never growing state. It's a state that leaves place to parasitic forces that will not combat them, that will in fact welcome them and reward them, therefore uh, not sustainable in the long term. But but I've I've been thinking about how the environment. There are certain environment scenarios that you can do that break basically the nap, that break the 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 very conception that the action of me may eventually hurt you, even if we're totally distant and I'm not violating your space, but through environmental impact. And I'm I, I would be fine with 
a limited approach to this, but it would have to be demonstrated factually. We, we wouldn't want to have a Department of Environment that takes control over people's land just out of concern of potential future impacts that have not been demonstrated. And guys, we have about another minute or two each. And so before we go into closing statements, if you have a question or a comment for each other, now is the time to do so. All right. Uh, do you want to conclude, uh, Dr. Burgess? Do you want me to start for the conclusion? Okay, so so I, I think what I just heard is we're doing a minute or two before. Well, the... I just want to make sure sometimes uh, there's a question that either interlocutor was dying to get out before the Q&A and they want answered. And so when both of you are ready for the outros and the Q&A, we'll go into it. If you're both ready oh, I, now, I, that I, sounds I, good too. Listen. Yeah, let's let's just, right. let's do the, oh. let's just do the first All right, two. and on that, we're going to head into the outros and then the Q&A. Please, everyone, keep on sending in your questions and super chats to me in chat at Amy Newman. However, whoever wants to go first, please feel free to tell us what you got going on in the real world, what you got going on on the Internet, and, of course, what are your final thoughts on the topic? All right, Jeff. who starts? Uh, what okay. Yep. All right. Uh, so I, in what I've heard tonight, uh, I've heard things I just fundamentally disagree with, such as definitional issues around authority and why we should all care at all about what people think in academia. Uh, that being said, I'm not satisfied with what Dr. Burgess brought tonight in terms of an answer to the two problems that I've stated at the beginning of the show. Eugenics and allocation of resources. All we hear are meta-analysis of what I've said, of what are the requirements for what I say, what are the consequences or the empirical demands on me. But what I have from Dr. Burgess is an absolute absence of how <clears throat> a socialist country will manage its eugenic pressures. It won't. It won't care about it. And that's a problem. How it will manage its allocation of resources? The problem is that all the solutions that are presented give too much power to too much people that don't deserve it, whereas capitalism allocates it to the best of the best in decision-making. For these reasons, I'm unsatisfied that the socialists even have a beginning of a plan to solve problems that will inevitably lead to the failure of any socialist country ever. All right. Uh, so uh, since Amy asked uh, for uh, the uh, the information about uh, you know what I do, where to find me, all that stuff, uh, so uh, I am a columnist for Jackman Magazine. You can read me there. Uh, I host a uh, YouTube show and podcast called Give Them an Argument. Uh, comes on at Monday nights at eight Eastern. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I, I also, um, may, uh, adjunct philosophy professor in which capacity I teach classes in which, for example, people, uh, actually find out what appeal to authority is. I can't resist, uh, sticking that in, uh, the, and, uh, and more importantly, what it is not. Now, uh, here's how I started the debate in my opening statement. Uh, I did two things. Uh, I explained what I meant by socialism and uh, provided a very specific model for how a socialist economy would work. Uh, and then I laid out a moral argument 
uh, for preferring that model to what we have right now. So the question you have to ask yourself as you go back and look at the debate is, did JF either point out some specific problem with uh, with that model? No, he didn't really engage with it. Uh, two, did, uh, did JF provide a compelling argument against the moral principle that I was appealing to uh, and that I, I motivated in the first part that I used to justify that model of socialism? No, he did not. So as far as what I laid out at the beginning, I would say that my arguments are entirely unanswered. Now, as far as what he laid out at the beginning, the sort of challenges that he started with, what he told us, and this is an argument not specifically against socialism, uh, it's a, you know, but against something that um, you don't even need to be a socialist to believe, which is, which is just that the creation of a modern welfare state is social progress. That's something that you could believe consistently with being a defender of liberal capitalism. Uh, so, you know, it is a bit off topic, but let's talk about it. They have a, uh, that, uh, that he said his challenge is given a very specific factual empirical prediction, which is that having any sort of welfare state, not just letting people starve to death in the streets is going to lead to worse consequences later on. And so he's been framing this as, well, how do you answer that challenge? And I would say that for there to be a challenge to answer, we would have to have the slightest reason to take seriously an empirical claim that most people with uh, with empirical knowledge that would be relevant to evaluating that claim don't believe, and we simply haven't heard one. That's why he has to deny the sort of basic logic, you know, intro to you know informal logic or critical thinking understanding of what the appeal to authority fallacy is. That's why he has to insist on what confused nineteen-year-olds in those classes uh, think that it is. That it's just sort of any kind of citation of the opinion of experts based on decades of collaborative research. Um, and, you know, frankly, I, I think that's a little sad. I was reading Wikipedia. Uh, you should go edit it because they have my version of the argument from authority definition. Okay. Uh, well, something else that you spend a lot of time telling interest students is that uh, is that going to Wikipedia is a really bad way of defining terms. What I would suggest you do after the debate is purchase uh, a critical thinking, informal logic kind of textbook and see what it says about the uh, the appeal uh, the appeal to authority fallacy. And invariably, any such textbook is actually going to include a line that's specifically designed to uh to head off the misunderstanding that you've expressed tonight to say look it's not the case that actually appealing to relevant authority in other words you know engaging in an epistemic division of labor some people research this some people research that we report back to each other that that's not what the appeal to authority fallacy is uh, you can read the one I wrote, uh, which I think explains this very well but uh, you don't have to do that you could really uh, pick, at random, you could you could print out the Amazon pages for a bunch of critical uh, thinking or informal logic textbooks, arrange them on the floor, throw a dart, and wherever it lands, buy that one and see what they say about the appeal. I, of the I, I just want to point out, I didn't say anything that was just attributed to me. That was Traman. I said you should go change the definition so that people stop getting fooled by my version because it's currently on Wikipedia. And then, Doctor Ben, if you want a single sentence. But no questions. Sorry, a single sentence? Oh. Yeah, well, it is technically your <laughs> closing, so yes, technically you get the final word. 
<laughs> okay, sure. Uh, so my uh, my single uh, my single sentence um, is uh, my single sentence. Uh, man, this is really hard. Uh, is that or thirty seconds? Whatever makes it easier. Something. <laughs> uh, letting people starve to death in the streets is really bad. And if somebody wants to say that you should allow it because of their prediction about what will happen, if it doesn't happen, you should demand an extremely high bar of evidence. And okay. On that note, I want to thank Dr. Ben and Dr. JF. Both of their links are in the description below. If you're like, Hmm, I like what I heard tonight. You can find more along with our brand new TikTok. However, we are moving into the Q&A section. So if you want your question answered by either or both of our interlocutors and debaters tonight, please tag me at Amy Newman. However, starting off $10 from Thunderstorm, according to Professor Anthony Sutton and many others, the capitalist communist conspiracy to bring about a global social world. Is there a question there? That was a comment, I guess, but if anyone would like to, I'll say, according to Professor Anthony Sutton and many others, the capitalist communist conspiracy to bring about a global social world. Maybe. Thank you so very much. Thank you so very much for your super chat and that response, uh, Thunderstorm. And Samar Rao for $10. JF, is there really enough selective pressure to sustain your eugenic model? How can you be incisive enough to select for welfare genes and not genes with other effects that may be beneficial? Well, actually, it's a misconception that the only way to get uh, selected out is to die. Uh, It's one way. It's one way, and it's important. But there are other ways of getting selected out, like being without infants or or making just less babies than the average will get you selected out of the population. So evolution right now is continuing, even in advanced societies. And it's continuing on that basis rather than just death. Thank you so much for your response and your super chat, Samar. Another res- uh, question from Samar. Dr. JF, how do you view income inequality? It might lead to significant economic drag and political dysfunction in your mini arcist model. Even if the poor all died off, the consequences would be immense. Well, uh, political, the thing is, in a minarchy, there's not really political disagreement. If you disagree on something, you just don't go eat at the same place. You make your own restaurants. If you want restaurants with masks, you build a private club and you call it the restaurant with masks. So political disagreements get resolved very well in a minarchy. Thank you so very much for that response. And another $5 Chupa Chat from Samar. To both debaters, 
what state slash country in the world today most embodies your ideal economic society? Why so? Interesting question. I often think about a about the America, at least if you forget slavery, the America of uh, a couple of hundreds of years ago, or Europe of maybe a, a maybe a thousand years ago, perhaps with less religious authoritarianism, but not far from this. Wow, uh, I was not expecting the pro-feudalism uh, position. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 capitalism, sure, but feudalism—that's that. That what surprises me. Uh, yeah, I'll, I will be extremely boring and say what you expect me to say, uh, which is the Nordics. I think that these are nothing like fully socialist societies. Of course, uh, they they still uh, they still have uh, extensive you know capitalist uh, property relations, but in terms of the ways that the power of capital has been rolled back by um, social democratic policies, uh, ex- expansive social programs, strong labor unions. Uh, I think that the I think that it is in terms of the kind you know societies that have most closely approached you know even if they're still on the capitalism side of the line have come closest to the kind of socialism that I would want. Uh, uh, then uh, then yeah I would I would say places like you know they're complicated societies. This isn't going to be true in every respect, but places like Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Norway, which uh, I would also point out are by any measures. Uh, the most livable societies that humans have uh, have ever built. I mean, we're talking about places where uh, the sun is shining for like five minutes a year and it's really cold, but they still win global happiness service. Thank you, doctors, for your responses and all of your super chats and support. Samar, a $10 super chat from Ozine Talks, JF. Do you support when Michael Bloomberg gave money to Beyond Coal Initiative? It led to many coal plants shutting down. This hurt miners and their communities that relied on the coal industry. I don't know about this story, uh, but uh, people firing people of their company, I'm perfectly fine. They have to. Or as the company because becomes a subject of parasitism. Thank you so much for that super chat and response. And then a five dollar super chat from Sunflower. Ben, nice Zeppelin shirt. If you had to guess, do you think a socialist state would produce as good a music as capitalist states have? Why? Why not? Uh, yeah. So first of all, uh, thank you. Uh, but, uh, but secondly, I do, I think that it would also produce a lot more bad music, uh, that capitalism has. That's something I think we have to take on board because, uh, if people have, uh, you know, if, if people have their material needs met, uh, if we have a sater distribution of resources, uh, people have more free time, uh, due to the working class, you know, being empowered to uh, to to make basic decisions about um, how to uh, to allocate uh, time, you know, time at work and time with family and all that stuff, without the degree of uh, of financial pressure that impacts on those decisions under capitalism, then I think you'd have a lot more people pursuing interests that right now they can't pursue because they because uh, they have to uh, to to work all the time just to they have to you know maybe have two jobs you know to uh, to support uh, to support their families 
Uh, and so once you freed up people to spend a lot more of their time the way that they wanted to, and I think if we're talking about a really advanced social society, maybe a lot more of their time than they want to, because automation uh, under under socialism could lead not to start some people losing their jobs, but to just everybody democratically decided to have everyone work uh, fewer hours. Uh, so people were more free to pursue their uh, their interests. Uh, then, uh, then I think a lot more people would, for example, start bands, and I'm sure most of them would suck. Uh, I, I don't, I don't doubt that for uh, for a moment. I think there would be, um, you know, I, I think to steal a line from my friend uh, Bhaskar Sankara, I think the the flood of uh, of of bad poetry, poorly argued books, you know, unlistenable music, etc., would be a sign of social progress. But I do also think that in that flood, there would be more good music being produced also, because as is true in any field of human endeavor, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, science, you know, scientific knowledge, whether we're talking about artistic accomplishment, anything, uh, inevitably, and, and this is, by the way, this is true, even given many, not all, but many of the empirical assumptions we heard from JF tonight, uh, in any field of human accomplishment, in a class society, where most people have to spend their lives uh, working for others just to make ends meet, you are inevitably going to get a lot of people who could contribute to those fields at the highest levels who are just never going to do so. And so I think along with all the bad music, uh, yeah, I do. I do in fact think that uh, my, my prediction would in fact be that you'd have more Led Zeppelin and, uh, or Ozzy or a Sabbath equivalent bands under socialism as the as the uh, as the standard for artistic greatness. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that response and your super chat, Sunflower. Appreciate the support. And then a five dollar super chat from Oflamo, Docs. I think both capitalism and socialism are politics getting in the way of finance, the raw numbers. What do you think about that? Politics getting in the way of finance, uh, definitely, if you are in a big state, uh, but not in a minarchy. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, this this question of politics... Sorry, this was for both of us, right? The, uh, so, I so, guess. Okay, I just want to make sure before I answer. But yes, the uh, I think this... I think that framing politics get the way of finance, I mean, does really drill down to one of the fundamental disagreements uh, we have tonight. So in other words, you know, when we're talking about finance, uh, when we're talking about the things that banks do, when we're talking about the things that major corporations do, as in the example about coal buyers, we're talking about decisions with massive impacts on the lives of millions of people. And so, you know, the, the question is, okay, do you think those decisions should be made by a small number of decision makers uh, within a corporate structure? Uh, or do you think that those decisions, you know, that the, the people who are going to be impacted on those decisions should have some sort of say in them? And I think to a great extent, that's what we're arguing about. Thank you so much for that response and the super chat of Flamo and a $10 Super chat from Eric Olfelson. The 98% socialist professors in academia produces 98% of papers saying the socialism of the 98% socialist professors is correct. Yes. Um, 
Well, for the sake of symmetry, I suppose I should just say no, but 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 if I could just do a couple sentences to expand on my no. Uh, as somebody who has been, um, you know, who has been around academia in one form or another for a very long time, uh, I would absolutely love to live in the questioner's version of reality. Uh, sadly, this is news from an alternate dimension. Socialists are a tiny minority of academics. As somebody who's been a committed socialist and, and been around universities, trust me when I say that I do not have as much company as all of that. There are more standard liberals than there are standard conservatives. That's true. But there are, uh, there are uh, far fewer socialists, you know, Marxists, anything like that, than there are either of those. And that's true even in philosophy. For the questioner's implication to make any sense, we'd have to assume that it's at, that the hard sciences are chock full of uh, of socialists. And man, I would like to see the evidence for that. Thank you so very much for those responses and that super chat, Eric Olfelson. Five dollars from Anomic Anomic, Doctor Ben. Do you think that a species? that separated a hundred thousand years ago into different environments, Europe and Africa, evolved to be exactly the same? Uh, sorry, I was muted. Uh, no, I don't. I think that there, uh, I think that there, there are, uh, that, uh, that those, those different environments produce some different results, most obviously skin color. Now, do they produce the kind of cognitive uh, differences that the questioner is insinuating without quite being bold enough to assert, uh, you know, in, instead of hiding behind the, the you know, open question. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I think that the, I think that uh, there are literally centuries of people trying to, uh, trying to dress that up as science and trying to come up with reasons to, uh, to think that that's true. And it is, and the history of, of, you know, race science of, you know, of, of attempts, to empirically prove uh, those differences, uh, not that cognitive capacities are unevenly distributed throughout the population. Of course, that's true, but that uh, but that that correlates with you know quote unquote race uh, in the way the questioner seems to think. There is a long track record of people trying uh, of people trying and spectacularly failing to uh, to prove that. And, uh, and, and once again, I think most of the people who are in the best position to know, I understand that, you know, it's the capitalist communist conspiracy to create a better you know, social world that they're probably all part of. But, uh, but, but if you are serious enough not to think that, uh, I just don't think that, uh, that what we hear from most people with relevant expertise is going to even remotely support the idea that there is that gap. Thank you so very much for that response and sending love a $5 super chat from Samar. And I just want to send extra love to you, Samar, for sending us love. JF, TRP aside, could a socialist system flourish if you could edit genes? Would it would it better, maybe be better, in some ways than an equivalent capitalist system? Well, uh, if you think at, at, from an individual perspective and you look at the ant colonies, they look like the socialist utopia with, with self-sacrificial, sterile workers, which, which is the ultimate form of equality, but it's an equality in layers. 
So I would say there are some very uh, worrying parallels between leftism and the revolutionary phenotype, and you might have a collaboration ultimately between people who are socialist and people who do gene editing, uh, and with the dream of creating equality with those gene editings. Yes, I'm worried about this. Thank you so very much for that response, and Samar, send in all of that love for the love that you sent us. Five dollars from Bob Ross. Woke redistributing wealth to gain equality. Best spoke, redistributing genes to gain equality. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a, uh, that, that sort of sounds like a, a cutesy version of the last one. Um, I, uh, I, I think you don't need to, uh, you know, see the entire earlier debate. I don't think you need to, uh, redistribute genes. I don't think you need to assume anything about human malleability. I think that you just need to uh, you just need to sort of value uh, basic human dignity and and not make uh, kind of unhinged predictions. Like that's all that's all you need to get where I want to go politically. Thank you so very much for that response and super chat, Bob Ross. Five dollars from Durandal Project for both. Would socialism need to result to eugenics because it would incentivize families to have larger families staying at home, consuming resources? Well, uh, it might attempt, but it will systematically fail at putting together a stable society because the, the authority choosing genes, if, if a socialist community was to decide to go eugenics, they would fail at making the right choices because it's not something you want to put in the hands of a human, just like the free market, you want it to operate on its own. Natural selection is very much like the free market. Yeah, so I assume in the context of this question, socialism actually means a welfare state. That's what it sounds like. Uh, but if we're, um, if we're asking what the relationship is between those things and, uh, and large families, uh, at least if what you're talking about is the kind of welfare state that socialists typically prefer, not a, a you know sort of means-tested, jumping through hoops uh, welfare state, but universal social programs in which uh, the uh, in which basic goods like healthcare and education uh, are you know are uh, are instituted as universal rights uh, that you don't have to do anything besides be a person to uh, to get, uh, where you know people are kept from falling below a, a certain you know certain standard. Of misery uh, universally, etc. Then uh, no, that would not, in fact, incentivize um, incentivize larger families. In fact, uh, if anything, uh, you know, I, I would think that the concern would be the other way around that the uh, that um, you know that under uh, under conditions of economic precarity, people often have incentives to have lots of children to support them in their uh, their old age. Uh, and whereas, you know, once you fix that problem, you know, people have as many or as few children as they as they want to have uh, for for their own reasons. And if anything, your worry would be about underpopulation. Thank you, doctors, for your responses and Durandal Project for that super chat. A big twenty dollars from Max McDonald. Thank you so very much, McDonald. Uh, does Jay? F often hear leftists say capitalism is what allows big tech to censor all right-wing views. 
You have monopolies like YouTube that ban anyone on the right, nobody on the left, because they have monopoly powers over bans? Uh, absolutely. There is a problem with corporations uh, being used for the dreams of the left in the current society. I would argue that in a society with true freedom, you would have place for competition to develop much more than currently. So ideally, uh, you would have competition come to address this, but I don't think the state should impose business relationships. The state shouldn't be able to say you have to bake the cake for this or that person. Uh, just want to say that the premise of the question is just wrong. Uh, it's not at all true that uh, that leftists are are never uh, censored uh, by by big tech platforms. Uh, that happens all the time. People can look at some of what I've written about this uh, for uh, for you know for examples uh, for examples of this uh, happening. Um, but but I also think there's like a really interesting question here that like often gets lost about like okay, when does what we have now count as capitalism and when doesn't it, right? So, so for example, we were talking about the iPhone, which is, is based on a, like, you know, everything, uh, everything in here almost, right? You know, there's some form of R&D was done by the state sector. Uh, that's, uh, you know, even given that degree of state capitalism, it's still counted as, you know, success of capitalism. Uh, whereas, you know, whereas when we, we talk about, um, you know, conservative complaints about tech censorship, for example, which, you know, I think are legitimate complaints. I think tech censorship is a problem, but, you know, then suddenly it's, uh, it's not real capitalism. Suddenly we start hearing about things like monopolies and, you know, collusion with the state. Thank you so very much for that response. And a big double thank you again, McDonald, for that super chat. $2 from Bubblegum Gun. Anarchism can only be capitalist. Slavo Zesik. Uh, yes, uh, I would say capitalism naturally emerges if there's no force. But uh, whether that happens is an empirical question depending on circumstances. I mean, I... Look, I'm not an anarchist. I, I have very little interest in sort of adjudicating what counts as real anarchism. I will just point out that most people who've called themselves anarchists are not supporters of, of, of capitalism, which is at least some reason to think that there's a way of thinking about it that would lead in a different direction. Uh, but moving to the question that I do care much more about, um, does capitalism just emerge naturally? Well, there's never been a historical example of that. Actual existing capitalism is is built uh, is built by by state intervention. I mean, whether we're talking about like enclosures in England during the Industrial Revolution, driving people off the land so they were desperate enough to work in early capitalist factories, whether we're talking about colonialism, you know, extending capitalism to uh, to much of the rest of the world, or whether we're just talking about day to day facts that you know, without which cap the capitalist economic engine couldn't keep humming the way that it is, about intellectual property laws, for example, about uh, in a state uh, state backed currency about you know chartering you know limited liability corporations and you know one could of course help oneself to the assumption that you could just subtract all of that and it would work just as well uh, but you know that that is a that is a pretty big empirical question and, and you know I I've certainly if if capitalism has 
emerged without state help anywhere in the world. I would be very curious to hear about it. Thank you very much, doctors, for your response and your super chat, Bubblegum. And then another $5 super chat from Samar. Send in all that love back, Samar. JF, what would a eugenic form of socialism or communism look like? Is it even possible? Also, what beer are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking Diet Pepsi. Uh, a eugenic form of communism. Well, I think that they've all been because evolution keeps going in these societies. So whatever society becomes communistic will become a eugenic communist regime. Uh, unless it can control that everyone does the exact same number of babies, it will have its own inner evolution and its own inner pressures. Thank you so very much for that response and your continued love, Samar. And then $5 from Tim Zilmich. Ben, two-part question. Do you imagine your great-grandchildren will be born and live in the U.S.? Second, were your great-grandparents born in the U.S.? Um, yes. Uh, yes on one. Uh, some were, some weren't on uh on the other uh some of my some of my great grandparents uh you know some of my great grandparents were born in the US uh some some were were born you know my uh great grandfather this you know my uh my dad's side was uh born in uh in the uh in uh you know Ukraine um and uh it left for the obvious reason uh that uh, that that you know jewish people left uh ukraine at that time uh but uh but yeah i i mean look i i have a i mean obviously history can surprise you and it can take weird twists and turns and and, and who knows uh maybe something you know truly awful will happen such that uh they they can't live in the u.s um but uh, but look, I'm, I'm a I'm an optimistic guy. I think I think they'll live in the United States, and I think they'll live in a better version of the United States, which you know, which people should be able to. I mean, like there's a this sort of weird thing that you know that people do sometimes when they hear, oh, there are ways in which the United States could be better. That you know that there are these things that we could take a page from other countries that have have done things better than we do, and uh, and improve our society. They'll say, you know, well, why don't you go live there? And I'd say, well. I mean that's like telling a Soviet dissident if you know if you want you know free speech you know go go live in Western Europe it's like no you should be able to continue to live in Russia and have free speech you know you should be able to continue to live in the United States and have uh, decent healthcare and education and all the rest of these things so yes I am I am uh, you know who knows but I am cautiously optimistic that you know any great grandchildren that I have uh, will uh, continue to live in the United States and it will be a much less dismally inegalitarian version of the United States. Thank you for that response and your super chat, Tim. $10, another super chat from Max McDonald. For JF and Ben, what do you think of capital markets? The idea that you need private investors to start a company, then expect in return a higher stock value. Is this bad for wages for the worker? No, that's very good. That's what we need for a functional society. And unfortunately, we're losing this 
because of fictitious money, money printing, the Fed rates. At this point, that's what's pacing the economy. But in a real world that, that really can select the, the good, the good to add nations going forward, that would be the world you just described. Uh, unsurprisingly, I think the opposite. Uh, I, I do not. Uh, I think that uh, in a fully social society, one that went beyond what's already been achieved by places like, you know, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and actually, uh, actually extended social progress to like changing the uh, economic foundations of the, uh, of the society. Uh, I think ultimately you would not have capital markets because that very process that you're describing is exactly how you end up with a society that's divided between a class of workers People who don't own their own means of production, who have to, who have no realistic option except for to go to work for people who do, and you know, take take orders from people who have no democratic accountability to them all day, and a class of people who own and who, you know, very often, depending on what kind of business we're talking about, live off of the sweat of others. I think uh, there was talk earlier in the debate about arbitrary authority. The kind of arbitrary authority I'm most concerned with is. Uh, authority that is not attached to some form of democratic accountability to the people who the authority is exercised over and capital markets is exactly what gets you that. I think you can have social control of investment uh, that uh, so you have socially owned uh, banks that give out initial grants, et cetera. And that's all consistent with having a sector of competing worker cooperatives. If you need that, for the sake of price signals and firm failure and all that stuff to, to keep the economy running. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for your answers, doctors, as well as this continued love, McDonald. A super chat from Eric Olfelson for $10, just sending in love. There might have been a question attached later. We'll find that. But if not, Eric, just thank you for all of the support. Another $10 super chat from Samar. JF, in a minarchy, how do you manage the justice system without starting a major corporate conflict? Uh, Oh, no, and I see the the comment. He's saying, sorry for asking. Oh, no, we absolutely love it. Um, And then says, didn't hear much from... And also, still interested in your system... uh, Ben as well. He has like a annotated quote there. But I'll, I'll say again, JF, in a minarchy, how do you manage the justice system without starting a major corporate conflict? Well, hopefully you are not in a kind of, you're not in a society at war when you build that justice system. A minarchy wouldn't stem from anything. It would stem from something that already exists and hopefully it's a society at peace. If not, perhaps uh, making a minarchist revolution is not your best priority. You should first make sure to stabilize the world in some form through military or or other means and then then you could establish a willful minarchy where there's not enough conflict to ruin your opportunity to start it. And then, Ben, if you had any, he was interested about your style of system. I wanted maybe if you had any comments on it, and then I'll let JF have the final comment. Um, sure. I mean, I, I guess I'm not quite sure which aspect the questioner is, is interested in, but uh, if you... 
Uh, so, sure, yeah, it I, was more directed at JF, but it seems like uh, they are just interested in your philosophy, and so maybe just shouting out there, you got a fan. <laughs> okay, well, I, I guess maybe let me just add this, right? That they have a uh, that um, that if you uh, if you would like to learn more about how I think a realistic, economically feasible, you don't have to make crazy assumptions that we have Star Trek technology or something, a version of a post-capitalist society could work. I wrote an article for Jackman called Capitalism Isn't Working, but what would uh, viable socialism look like? Uh, which, or at least that's close enough to the wording that if you if you Google all that, you'll die, and my name and Jackman, you'll definitely find that. Uh, there's a article that uh, that Mike Beggs just just wrote for Catalyst magazine called "The Market and Workplace in a Democratic Socialism." Uh, Mike is one of the two co-authors with so me, him, and Bhaskar Sankara for a new book from Verso called "The Blueprint," where we talk about how this society might work. Uh, I'd also say if you want a book that's already out uh, after Capitalism by David Schweikart, which I mentioned earlier is also a good one to, uh, to to look at. And if there are more specific questions later in the q and I'm obviously happy to answer those. Thank you so very much. And then, uh, Dr. JF, if you wanted to have 15 I'm seconds good. or anything. All right, we're ma- moving forward. I do want to thank both of you for your answers and the continued support, Samar. A- another big $20 super chat from Nax McDonald, and we are really sending you all that love back. Would you both argue that your system could deal with America's problems right now of not making anything anymore? China makes all of our products, and Wall Street bankers get the money. Don't we need a manufacturing base? Absolutely. I think that if you were to remove a little bit of the red tape pressure of the government, the taxes, uh, you'd be on your way for a manufacture revolution in America. Yeah, I don't think that the evidence supports that, because if you look at the timeline of when deindustrialization uh, took place in the United States, um, that you know, this is a process that that really took off not as uh, corporate taxes, taxes in the top income bracket were being increased, uh, not as uh, regulation on business was being increased, uh, but during a time uh, the the sort of Reagan Bush Clinton Bush era uh, that was actually in a lot of ways an orgy of uh, of deregulation. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, doing things like lifting tariffs and, you know, making it, uh, you know, making it much easier to, uh, you know, for, for it to be profitable for American corporations uh, to, uh, to, to outsource jobs uh, without, without losing the sort of full cheap access to, uh, to American markets. I think that, I think that we absolutely should be, uh, be making more stuff. I am absolutely in favor of, uh of, of it being a policy goal to revive manufacturing in America, but I don't think you can deregulate your way to that outcome. I think that you actually need, uh, I actually think you need state policy. You need state-led uh, economic development, uh, which I think there's a lot of evidence from all over the world has been, you know, if you want to have a country with a bigger, bigger manufacturing sector, that's what gets it done. 
Thank you not only for that responses, but we are coming towards the end of the Q&A. So if you want to get your burning desire question answered by one or both of our debaters, now is the time to get them sent in. And we really do appreciate all the support. $5 from Silver Spider. Hey, Ben. How do we remove socialists from power who become dictators? It seems very difficult without bloody revolutions. Uh, I think the answer is elections. Uh, that the uh, that uh, that actually, uh, if you want to remove people from power when they're abusing authority, the sort of uh, the solution to this that uh, advanced Western nations uh, have, have converged on for political purposes uh, is having free multi-party elections in which, uh, in which people can simply vote to remove them from power. So the socialist, um, the socialist impulse is to extend that solution into the economic sphere, the solution that already works very well uh, for um, you know, that's uh, as, as imperfect as it is, it's a big improvement of what we had earlier for parliamentary democracy, in the political realm that, you know, to extend that to the economic realm, because unfortunately under capitalism, quite a bit of the power structure is not up for democratic election. Quite a few of the people who are making the decisions that have the most impact on the lives of millions and millions of people, you know, are elected only by, you know, shareholders, which is not the majority of the population, uh, or not even by them, depending on you know what kind of firm, what kind of financial entity that we're that we're talking about. So I would say that the premise of socialism is that we should extend uh, the uh, the way to remove bad rulers without uh, bloodshed that we already use in the political sphere. That we should extend that to the economic sphere. Uh, we, we don't hear you. I have to do that at least once a podcast. I was just miming. That was just, um, but thank you. $2 super chat from JF, or from Chess, for JF. How can you say these monopolists favor socialists? These monopolists? What is, what is the word? He did say monopolist. It could be maybe how can these monopolies favor no, I, socialism? I, I, think I, I think my guess is what the questioner means is like, you know, YouTube, etc. These, these are uh, for-profit private companies. Oh, okay. Why is it that you think they're favorite socialists? That'd be my guess. Oh, well, I mean, from the censorship perspective, uh, literally every... Uh, rule that there is on YouTube, except the most extreme one against extreme statement and violence. Uh, most of the rules that you see on social media platform are biased from a leftist standpoint. They will deny the right of the right winger to have its their traditional conservative position, and they will encourage the leftist view on the question, from uh, vaccine uh, th- vaccine related stuff to gender-related stuff, that, that is the, the standard. Woohoo! Thank you so very much, Chess, for your question. It looks like we only have 
three more super chats. And so if you don't get that super chat in, we are about to be closing up shop. Though I do want to thank both doctors for being with us today and answering all of our questions, the back and forth, and of course, their links right there in the description. But a final $2 from Bubblegum Gun. Oh, spicy. Dr. JF, would you debate me one-on-one -on, -one on evolution? I accept all debates. So you just have to organize it and send me an email. And there we go. We have another modern-day debate incoming. So thank you so very much, Bubblegum Gun. And of course, if you out there are looking for more debates, feel free to reach out to us at the Modern Day Debate community. We are always looking for new debaters and even more juicy new debate subjects. And so if you think you got something that hasn't been heard before, or if you think you have something that the people would like, come find us, come debate. And uh, thank you so very much for your super chat and response. $5 super chat from Chess again, send in love. Who is to determine what genes are best? Shouldn't you leave it to nature? Everything will be forgotten and no one gets out alive. So what? Absolutely. It's a big problem. People who want to choose genes. Conscious eugenics is a very bad idea. Uh, natural eugenics, letting it go, is what nature is good at, and it's what always we should pursue. The least interventionism possible. And all right, I think this is going to be a good one to end us on, because it's for both. In whose society would people be more happy? Ah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think you can get re you can have a a moment in the transition from a capitalist society to a socialist, where they might actually have the upper hand in the sense that by equalizing access to resources, you might make people more happy for a while, simply because that money wasn't available for generating psychological happiness in a very unequal society. Uh, that being said, I would argue that in the long run. Uh, that state would not be sustainable. You could not sustain a better life through a socialist world with uh, intergenerational times. Yeah, so I think uh, that that first part was, I think, a really interesting admission. And of course, the, uh, the existing data uh, supports the idea that... Um, that you know, moving in the kind of political direction socialists want, uh, at least the democratic socialists want. You know, nobody's defended Stalin here. Uh, is a uh, does in fact lead to greater levels of happiness? That the uh, the countries that I mentioned a couple times in the debate as some of the places that have moved the furthest, even you know, if they haven't gone you know beyond capitalism yet, in the direction that I would want with expansive universal social programs, strong labor unions, etc rolling back the power of capital, you know, create, you know, fulfilling some basic material needs, places like Finland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden. These are places that are way up at the top of every uh, global happiness studies, uh, despite the fact that they're starting with their hands tied behind their backs uh, because they, because, uh, because of the, they're, uh, they're such cold, dark uh, places. Uh, don't get mad at me, Nordic people uh, who are watching. Now, the other claim that we heard is, well, okay, for now, 
moving towards greater economic equality, you know, more, um, uh, you know, towards, towards rolling back the power of capital, towards empowering working class people. For now, it will lead to have more happiness. But uh, in the long run, uh, it will not. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to repeat everything I've said about this earlier in the debate because uh, I don't want to be tedious. But I do want to just say one last thing to advance the argument, which is that on the subject of whether we should be consulting expert opinion about those uh, about those uh, those predictions and um, whether whether demanding that we do so commits the appeal to authority fallacy. I heard earlier that I should correct Wikipedia, but I just looked at the appeal the Wikipedia page on appeal to authority, uh, an argument from authority. I believe that's what he's looking at. Uh, and, uh, and it actually says what I said. Uh, now it says that, you know, that any kind of argument where you have, uh, where you, you're citing the opinion of authority, that, that falls into the general pattern of reasoning appeal to authority. But it very clearly says that you're not committing the appeal to authority fallacy just by doing that. In fact, what it says is that this is a, this argument is good in some conditions. For example, I need to take my medication because my doctor told me to do so. Doctors are trained, know about medication, etc. It's bad skipping down when there's false or unclear authority. And if you go to the uh, the first reference at the end of that article, the Stanford.edu on logical fallacies, and scroll down to appeal to authority, it says the appeal to authority fallacy is being committed when, for example, the authority is not an expert in the field. Experts in the field uh, disagree. The authority was joking, drunk, or in some way not serious. So um, I, I think, you know, it's probably... I, I will note that what you read is some. Some. So so what this Wikipedia article is saying, some people like Dr. Burgess exist. Others consider it to be a fallacy to cite the views of an authority on the discussed topic as a means of supporting an argument and so they describe both dr burgess and me okay uh i don't see that part of it i see a very short article with uh three paragraphs first first paragraph uh fourth line third and fourth line at the very top in the intro very top but anyways i mean that's just uh, all right right. well we may be looking different uh because anyway uh look i all i've said is that it's probably the least important thing that we uh, that we that we disagreed on in this debate because we also disagreed on subjects like um, you know, eugenics, uh, whether it's good to have a safety net so people don't starve to death in the streets, uh, uh, how much uh, whether Wikipedia uh, disagrees with logic textbooks about how to define the appeal to authority fallacy is way down at the bottom of the list. But uh, I do think actually looking at the article that the gap is a bit smaller than JF has suggested. And I just want to do a last laugh, so I'll give it back to you guys. So this is, we're sending a lot of love, uh, Max McDonald. You have sent us so much love, so we want to send it back. And it is a question for both. So the after credit scene for $5, JF is coming from Canada as a socialist country part of why you feel this way? Ben, your view on how Canada runs as a nation compared to America? Uh, No, Canada didn't influence me very much on this. Uh, I would say I I came to this conclusion based on theoretical considerations and then eventually being faced by some realities that we face in uh, highly populated areas of Canada. But I would say you can live a very independent existence in Canada 
where if <clears throat> if you you're not a millionaire, if, if you don't make too much money, they're they're going to leave you alone and you will basically live the the capitalist dream if you live far enough from uh, the big centers. Uh, I would say that if we're comparing Canada to the United States, we have to take that on a case by case basis. Uh, there are there are things uh, that are better about the uh, the United States. Uh, we don't have the colossal embarrassment of considering the uh, the, the king of uh, the king of Great Britain as our as our head of state. So that that's definitely a point for the United States. I think that there are certain ways, as like somebody like Noam Chomsky has often acknowledged, that in terms of things like free speech, separation of church and state, uh, that the uh, the United States uh, actually does have some real political virtues. But uh, you know, I think that Canada has uh, some some very real things going for it that the United States uh, does not. Uh, most you know, most Amer- you know, like most Americans uh, cor- correctly uh, hate. Our healthcare system, which is awful and stressful, and uh, and leads to a lot of avoidable human misery. Uh, Canada's isn't perfect, but it is wildly popular, even among people who live uh, far away from those big cities. Which is why uh, even conservative uh, politicians in Canada don't run on a platform of saying, "Oh, let's privatize uh, Canadian Medicare. Let's uh, uh, you know, let's have something more like the American system," because they know that if they said that, they would never ever win another election again. And all right, on that note, I want to thank both of our interlocutors, our mods, and of course you, our audience, for joining us here tonight on Modern Day Debate. We are a neutral, nonpartisan platform welcoming everyone from all walks of life. If you're looking for even more fantastic debates, we are now all over the internet, including your favorite podcasting platform, like our new TikTok, the link of which is in the description below. So if you enjoy the show, then please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. It helps us reach an even wider audience, like that share button, including tonight's debate on capitalism versus socialism with our debaters, Dr. Ben and Dr. JF, here to help us find that answer, plus If you like what either or both of our guests have said tonight, all of their links are also in the description below. Finally, if you're looking for even more fun, the after party starts right after the debate at the MDD Discord. Also, right there, description below. And with that, I am A.B. Newman with Modern Day Debate, and we hope you continue to have amazing conversations, discussions, and debates. Good night. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.